Hello, Catholic discussion. This is Bart Upart, and we are continuing our journey through uh, through Holy Week. And we just did an episode. This past one was on Palm Sunday. And as I'm reading through this book, right, the book that I'm mainly getting a lot of this information from, along with my own reflection on what he's writing, is uh, Joseph Ratzinger's, a.k.a. Pope Benedict XVI's book, Je- Jesus of Nazareth, Holy Week, From the Entrance into Jerusalem, to the resurrection, an amazing book. However, as I was reading through it, we started. We, we after Palm Sunday, he starts getting into some rants, or not rants, but theological rants and disputes. Um, and then he gets to Holy Thursday, but he devotes like fifty pages on the washing of the feet. So I was like, okay, I don't think I should do one episode on all of Holy Thursday. We're gonna maybe split up Holy Thursday a little bit. So we'll see how much I can do. Um, who knows, some of these things I might just have to release after Holy Week. Maybe they might still be helpful because, right, just because it's after Easter, we could still be contemplating the whole story of salvation. Um, and not just for Holy Week, but maybe for the rest of our lives year round. So also, I just want to apologize in advance. Um, our neighbors are fixing their house, so you might see some, or you might hear some hammers and uh, some extra noises that uh, aren't in my room or in this part of the house. They are neighbors and we share a wall here. So anyways, let's begin. We're going to talk today about the washing of the feet. And a lot of the things that Benedict talks about just absolutely blew my mind about some of the deep symbolism and deeper meaning behind behind simply, oh, this idea of washing the feet is just kind of like a charitable act and we should, you know, we should be nice to others. Um, I feel like a lot of times, especially when I'm teaching these kids and we talk about washing the feet, I, w- I don't want to just reduce it to that, to them, that there is something deeply mystical about this as well, but it also still applicable to our lives today, to our spiritual lives, especially. So, right. Why don't I just start off with uh, John chapter 13, verses one through 17, wherein we get uh, the actual story and the dialogue, right, between especially Simon Peter Right, the Apostle Peter and our Lord. So let's begin. This is chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What am I doing? You do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? 
You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Wow, a lot to unpack there, right? Immediately, I want to go towards the beginning here. The first verse is right, uh, especially in, yes, verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What is that end? What does it mean to love to the end, right? Benedict really talks about that all of these actions, uh, everything is pointing to Good Friday. Everything is pointing to uh, Christ's own crucifixion, right? His death, his spending of self, his giving of himself, not just to his apostles, but right to every one of us, right? We're saved by this mystery as well, by these actions, by these uh, wonderful, crazy, but also sad things that happen throughout this holy week, Um, not just immediately the apostles who knew Christ. So let's move on from here, right? We get um, uh, love, right? This idea from Benedict is that there's this love for the lost sheep. It's a movement of love. We, we, we've, we've heard of that parable, right, where Christ is compared to the good shepherd that goes out, goes away from the 99 to save that one lost sheep. And that's this is also kind of the theme that he's playing on here, right? And because of this, because of he's buying us back, right? That's what redemption means. Redemption isn't the same thing as salvation, right? We kind of learn it from Baltimore Catechism, for example, that uh, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. I don't have the Baltimore Catechism opened up in front of me. But redemption is the it, it's the buying back of us, of our souls uh, from God, right? It's giving us the opportunity to be opportunity to be saved, right? Salvation is salvation, right? Obviously, the definition is right there, right then and there. So let's let's go into this idea of washing feet, idea of cleanliness. So the Jews have a lot of rituals that are connected with this idea of cleanliness. So basically, this, this idea of ritual cleansing, which is what makes you clean, not just physical cleanliness, right, which was important, but also it was supposed to be deeper. It was supposed to be symbolic. It was supposed to be a spiritual cleaning as well, right? I think when we we hear uh, some stories of Jesus uh, curing the blind and the lepers, they have to go through a ritual cleansing, right, according to the Mosaic law. Now, right, we've got one end of like the spectrum here, right, that the Jews and the Pharisees care a lot about is the rich are the rituals, right? What do you do? What you do determines your relationship with God. To a certain extent, right, we believe that. But so here's the thing, right? You do it and that's how you get saved. That's the process of your salvation. So basically works, that's that's what's important. It's the works of the faith. But Jesus challenges that in another chapter, right? Earlier in John, when the Pharisees uh, basically claim heresy <laughs> to the apostles when they don't wash their hands before they uh, they dine. Um, this Our Lord says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So, right, rituals can be empty. Rituals can be done, right, according to the proper form and stuff. But if there isn't that faith, that's the most important part. Now, this doesn't, right, this Jesus is not saying that rituals are not important. Right, he himself is going, about to do, and we're, we just we just heard it in chapter thirteen, and he continues to do, it, and he actually commands us to do these rituals, 
right? The washing of the feet. And he commands us to do what? The Last Supper, which we'll talk about in another episode. I mean, heck, we could devote a whole podcast on just the Last Supper and that amazing, amazing moment and that amazing reality, I should say. So that's in Mark 7, where he writes there, but your hearts are far, but their hearts are far from me. So it's about your heart. It's really about uh, what's your intention because you can mumble prayers, you can perform rituals in a dry way, um, but your heart isn't there. So that's why also Paul talks about it. He starts challenging circumcision, right? He says, you, uh, when he talks, I think it's in Corinthians, where he's talking about the, the uncircumcised of heart, right? That's the important part. It's not just the, the physical circumcision that might matter, but it's that more what's superior than that is the circumcision of the heart, leaving behind the old man. Right. On the other side, you have the morality, right? So we've we've got rituals on one side that only rituals are necessary. And on the other side, we've got this new extreme, uh, if based on how you interpret this. Morality, right? How you act, um, how you act, how what what is the state of your heart is gonna affect your salvation, your relationship with God. However, as Catholics, we love the Catholic both and, right? It's actually both of them, right? Through these rituals, provided that we do them with the proper disposition, right? With the heart that we mean what we say we mean what we do. This is actually the process of our salvation, right? Obviously, Christ's rituals that he performs and he asks us or commands us to perform aren't empty, right? They're given by our Lord himself. We can make them empty sometimes, right? I, I'm sure you guys have heard of like stories of or you've been to those masses where the priest is kind of just mumbling through the prayers and doesn't really care what's going on. That's not good. That's not good, right? Ultimately, it's the intention that also matters right here. So, right, purity, and th- this is a quote from uh, Benedict, purity and impurity arise within man's heart and depend on the condition of his heart, right? So, a lot of times, uh, critics of Christianity will say that Christianity is just like a moral system. But, like, it, although that's definitely partially true, Jesus didn't come down to, like, renew morality or something like that. He definitely did that to a certain extent, especially with the Jews, right? Uh, Challenging the Jews' uh, kind of traditions of men. And he's like, nope, actually, if you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Boom. Roasted. And he goes farther than that. It's actually about, my one of my favorite R words, relationship. It's about relationship with God. It's not, no more this master versus servant type of thing. But our salvation doesn't even just depend on, like, right, if we feel God or not, whatever. It's not dependent on our emotional intensity. It's not dependent on the rituals. It's dependent on our relationship. Those things are supposed to aid us, though, right? Those things are naturally supposed to aid us. That's why the sacraments are good. Devotions are good. Those things aid us to get closer to Christ in terms of, right, relationship, Faith cleanses the heart. And we, we, we think sometimes that faith is something that we have to do, that we have to initiate. And to a certain extent, right, we say like, oh, have faith, have faith. But faith is actually, it's a result of God's initiative towards us, towards you and me, and not vice versa, right? It's not like, oh, I have to decide to have faith, and therefore God shall bless me. I have faith in you, Lord. Bless me. You know, no, it's actually a gift. Faith is a gift. Now, 
back to the washing of feet. It's a rite of purification to a certain extent, right? He's performing a kind of little s sacrament here. Um, so this idea, right, washing. Jesus basically, oh, you know what? Hold on. <laughs> Let me go back a little bit here with with the washing. Here's some here's some cool kind of symbolism here as well. Is that where do we get this site? I asked the eighth graders this morning when I was talking a little bit about this, not to the full extent that we are doing it now in this podcast, but I asked them, I'm like, well, where do we get this idea of like the bath in the, in Christianity of being fully bathed? And they were like baptism. And I'm like, exactly. What other kind of language has there been employed throughout scripture and throughout church history about being washed in something? And, and one of the kids like that, I, that I didn't think would answer this way, but uh, she did. Uh, she said, like, being washed in Jesus's blood. And I'm like, exactly. That's what's being pointed out here through Jesus, right? It's, again, just like I said earlier in the podcast, is that all of this that is happening throughout Holy Week is pointing to God, to Jesus shedding his blood for us, loving us to till the end, right? Jesus points to him being the blood by which we are washed and cleansed. His love is that blood manifested, right? Manifested in the sense of the self-gift of the death on the cross. Like I said, like I said before, I don't know how many times I've received a penance uh, during, after confession of just contemplating being washed in our Lord's blood. And it's kind of weird to like maybe this typical, typical secular person or maybe even the Protestant, but to the Orthodox and to the Catholic, this is actually quite a common occurrence. I mean, we hear it in Paul, Paul's letters. We hear it throughout a bunch of church fathers and hymns and other such saints. But this idea of being washed in blood, what else does it remind you of, guys? The Old Testament, right? The lamb being sacrificed. And that is so amazing. We're going to talk about that on Good Friday because there's a lot of symbolism as well in John. This is why I love John. John is probably my favorite gospel because of the uh, constant mystical interpretations of who Jesus is. Jesus isn't just the Jewish Messiah. He's not just the guy that's going to bring in the Gentiles into the fold of the people of God. But he's also Logos. He's also the Word, right? That verbum caro factum est. And the Word became flesh. Anyways. Let's keep going here. We talked about that, right? We talked about this this idea of relationship, right? Going back, Galatians 2.20, Paul says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So there's this very kind of carnal aspect to Christianity, that relationship is necessary, not just amongst each other as the body of Christ, but also to with Christ, in Christ. Right, we get that point in the liturgy, uh, through him and with him and in him, right? Through him, with him, and in him. It's this total kind of mixture of who I am and who Christ is, and we are one, right? We get that through the Eucharist. We get through through all the sacraments. Oh my gosh, so much right there. Let's see. There was another thing that I wanted to read for you guys. Ah, Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Page 64. Pope Benedict says, We must let ourselves be immersed in the Lord's mercy. Then our hearts, too, will discover the right path. The new commandment is not simply a new and higher demand. It is linked to the newness of Jesus Christ. 
to growing immersion in him. Yes, this idea of immersion. I love that. I love that idea, right? It's not just about the morals. It's not just about living a good life or, you know, emotional stuff or whatever. It's about relationship and not just simple kind of one-on-one relationship, but one-in-one relationship of total immersion. And that's a lifetime process, guys, right? I'm not I'm not claiming to be the, the doctor, the, the, you know, the, the master of theology here, like I'm kind of, I'm, again, I'm kind of just trying to uh, condense and simplify a little bit of what Benedict, Benedict is saying here. And he's saying so much. Now, let's go to chapter 13, verses 21, and a little bit later too. After saying these things, right, he just talked about the scripture being fulfilled, uh, Last, he's starting the Last Supper, right? We're already in the Last Supper in a sense, but it's connected with the washing of the feet. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking, So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What are you going to do? What you are going to do, do quickly. We're going to stop there here. Obviously, we we know the rest of the story here. Let's compare Judas and Peter for a second, right? We know that Judas is going to betray here, but here's a little bit of um, of a beautiful uh, reflection here by this guy named Charles K. Barrett, uh, who I'm guessing, Benedict doesn't say, but I'm guessing is a scriptural scholar. And he's talking about the, the reclining at table. I didn't know that this had any significance. I just kind of thought like, oh, you're, you're like sitting near a low table like you see in movies in the middle about the Middle East and stuff and there's a significance about where ever anyone sits a silly me I was so wrong persons taking part in a meal reclined on the left side the left arm was used to support the body the right was free to use the s- disciple to the right of Jesus would thus find his head immediately in front of Jesus and might accordingly be said to lie in his bosom Evidently, he would be in a position to speak intimately with Jesus, but his was not the place of greatest honor. This was to the left of the host. The place occupied by the beloved disciple was nevertheless the place of a trusted friend. So right to the right of Jesus is John, John the beloved disciple, and then to the left is Peter, right? So there's already this beautiful kind of mystical interpretation of like, we we, we see this in painting sometimes that uh, John is reclined really close to Jesus, basically on his lap. Um, and that's that's kind of the visual imagery that we get here, the closeness, the fidelity, right? Uh, the, uh, this, this is actually quite amazing here as well, in that we get a little bit earlier. Mm-mm-mm. Where are we? 13, yeah, thir- chapter 13. Uh Verse 18, I'm not speaking of all of you, right? Jesus is talking about, they're all like, wait, who, what, what's going on? But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. 
he's quoting Psalm 41 here, but he's also talking about the infidelity, right? He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Right, but let's go back a little bit to 18 here. Uh, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. The verb for eat is trogain. And if you guys have heard of the, the right the, the discourse of the bread of life in John 6, 45 through like 56 or something like that, uh, in the 50s of John's chapter 6, uh, when Christ says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, instead of the normal uh, phagos, which is kind of like your normal eating food, he uses trogos, trogain, which is more like chew or gnaw, like a dog would chew on flesh. And he actually uses, John uses the same verb here, trogos, so it's about fidelity again, right? It's It's about Right, we we know that whoever's gonna dip his hand in this morsel and eat this bread, basically, like you're committing infidelity here. So there's this Eucharistic aspect to already what hasn't even started the Last Supper, what we know the Last Supper for, right? For the institution narrative, we already get some in, uh, Eucharistic language beforehand. I'm sorry if I'm jumping around a little bit. Uh, now, let's go back to comparing Judas and Peter. One of the main things that we we hear a lot about. Judas and Peter, and I was telling this to the kids today, I asked them, what's the difference between guilt and shame? And I mean, they had a various amount of answers, and it was hard, but right, the, the definition that kind of the church gives us in a sense, is that guilt says that, okay, I've done something bad there, and, and, and I'm, I'm, ideally, I'm sorry for it. Shame says I've done something bad, therefore, I am a bad person. Now, Judas, in his betrayal, obviously a bad thing, the greater sin committed here isn't just the betrayal, but is that Judas's sin, his, his guilt, turns into shame. Uh, he might be sorry for what he's done, but it lets that shame and guilt eats the inside of his soul, and it turns into despair. What's despair? It's giving up hope. Not just in the secular sense of like hope, but like giving up on God's mercy. And that's a sin. We consider that a sin going into despair. You're actually kind of like spitting in the face of God. No, you're not worthy to have mercy on me, which is weird and strangely ironic. I mean, I've experienced that. I've definitely experienced despair, um, especially, right? Like we can, we can uh, experience that with habitual sins, right? And so it's, it's pretty crazy here. Now, Peter. Peter also, right, that first incident that we get, um, or not the first one, the, the big one that we all know that he denies Jesus three times, but there's there are a couple beforehand, right? Jesus says that I'm going somewhere, and and Peter asks, right, where are you going? And our Lord says, where I'm going, you, ne you cannot come now, only later. And with Peter's kind of desire to rush in, his heroism, he's like, Lord, I will follow you. Lord, I will die for you. Uh, Lord, you know, whatever. And we kind of see that acted out when uh, at the Garden of Gethsemane, when the soldiers come and arrest him, he takes out the sword of one of the guards and he cuts off the guard's ear. Right, he's willing to die for our Lord. Um, but the, the the incident here, the the kind of the sin of pride that's gutting into Peter, his radical hero heroism here, is that well, Peter needs to learn how to listen, how to follow, not to command God. And I think that's super. Uh, uh, 
we can understand that relevant uh, for us is that sometimes we we set expectations for God. We command God, right? This is how I want things to be done. And I will do the craziest thing, the most radical thing, and you're going to bless me for it. And our Lord's like, okay, hold up. Nope, that's not what I want you to do. I want you to do the white martyrdom, not the red martyrdom, right? We have to kind of learn how to accept God as he reveals himself, not as we kind of, in our distorted ideas sometimes of God, how we uh, how we interpret him, but who truly as he is. So let, let me rephrase, or let me go back to what Benedict in his own words says. The two exchanges are essentially about the same thing. Not telling God what to do, but learning to accept him as he reveals himself to us. Not seeking to exalt ourselves to God's level, but in humble service, letting ourselves be slowly refashioned into God's true image. Beautiful, beautiful words there. Beautiful words right there. Let's go back in conclusion to the washing of the feet, getting deeper into the symbolism here. And this this was the thing that absolutely blew my mind. So that's why I saved it to the last here. Right. Let's go back to what he says here, what Peter and Jesus says. Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Right? So this is how Benedict kind of starts interpreting this a little bit. You've already taken a bath. That's basically what he's saying. You've already been cleaned, but your feet need to be uh cleaned here now on a practical historical level here right most of you guys know it's pretty sandy and dirty in you know first century palestine uh and they don't have closed toed shoes like we do uh, so they're wearing sandals ultimately your feet are still going to be dirty and it was a custom in the ancient world throughout roman greek uh persian israeli culture or jewish culture that uh, you would take off your shoes and you would clean them. If you were going to an important household, like that of a noble or a famous rabbi, or especially into like the temple or synagogue, you someone there would be servants sometimes there washing your feet for you. So, right, Christ is not just taking on this uh, role of like, oh, this is what you should do, but he's taking on this role of a servant um, that if you want to serve or if you want to be a leader, if you want to be in right relationship with me, you have to be willing to be served here. And washing of the feet, right? This isn't just an individual sacrament. But again, this is all connected to this mystical kind of mystery gift of Jesus's outpour of love through his passion. Compare it to New Testament, to our understanding of it here. What is the complete bath? Baptism. But what could the washing of the feet that hap- that still needs to happen, what could that be? Benedict interprets it this way. He says that the washing of the feet is the sacrament of reconciliation, confession, right? It's, it's, it's quite amazing here. We, we, we see a little bit of this here. Um, yeah, in the first letter of John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
right? If we say if we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Benedict goes back a little bit and he says, The complete bath that was taken for granted can only mean baptism by which man is immersed into Christ once and for all, acquiring his new identity as one who dwells in Christ. This then gets repeated again later in later texts as well. For example, the Didache, right? One of the earliest early Christian texts outside of Scripture that we get, um, especially when it comes to the sacraments and how church was celebrated. And this is what it says in the Didache. Quote, In church, make confession of your faults, assemble on the Lord's day, and break bread and offer the Eucharist. But first, make confession of your faults. Obviously, confession back then didn't really look that's similar to what it looked quite different possibly to what we do today but right we have to allow the organic development right of the sacraments and the rituals that organically develop throughout time so but but i'm sure you guys understand that the things that i think are that that we can take from here from from the washing of the feet this whole ritual is looking back at jesus and or sorry judas and peter right guilt cannot take root because it could lead to shame, which can then, if it's fostered, it then leads to despair. Go to confession. Just re- go and let yourself be bathed in Christ's blood. That's It's probably one of the greatest gifts. It's one of the greatest gifts that we have. is not just the Eucharist, right? But actually meeting Christ in that sacrament of reconciliation. And, know, and being known, let it be known... Un- Uh, What am I trying to say? We know that we are being forgiven, specifically through that sacrament. That's the problem of like, yeah, like you can confess your sins to God and be sorry and do like an act of contrition and be contrite, but you don't actually know if you're forgiven. The sacrament itself, right, through the ministry of of Christ, right, the high priest, through the, the human priest that we have in our church, guarantees that we are being forgiven as long as we're sorry and as long as we right we try to amend our lives we try to change our lives and not do that now here's a beautiful beautiful quote to end this podcast from pope benedict the hour of the cross is the hour of the father's true glory the hour of jesus's true glory thanks for joining me today And we'll have more future podcasts on Holy Week coming up soon. Thank you, guys. Goodbye.